Well, welcome. Well, welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. Go ahead and start. As many of you know, um, I was a teacher for nine years, and I've been a mother for eight years. Um, and so I've worked a lot with kids, and I've had a lot of experience um, talking to children. And I'm pretty good at picking out when there's sincerity, when what is spoken is genuine or not. As a teacher and a mother, I have both witnessed and orchestrated more apologies than I can count. And um, sometimes they go really well, and the person who's in the wrong is very sincere in their regret. And, you know, the tears come, and I'll never do it again, and everyone hugs, and we're, you know, happy campers. And uh, sometimes that's not how it goes. And if you've worked with kids, you know what I'm talking about. Those apologies that start like this, they start off saying, I am so sorry, but then continue with, but if you hadn't put your paper, the corner on my desk, I wouldn't have had to throw it across the room and this wouldn't be happening. You know, and, and those apologies where it's pretty obvious that they're not sincere. Today we're going to talk about the heart, and we're going to talk about being genuine and sincerity. And so I'm excited to dive into um, God's Word today. And we're going to continue our series, our message series called Jesus Speaks. And we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, a specific sermon that Jesus um, preached to a group of people who was on a hillside, and so they call it the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to look at the section in the sermon where Jesus talks to the religious or speaks of the religious system of the day. And uh, the religious system of that day had turned into a list of do's and don'ts. It had turned into a checklist. It had turned into um, a very legalistic system that had become toxic for, for the people in it. And people were so concerned about following this checklist and this list of do's and don'ts that their heart was not in it and their heart was not right before God. And unfortunately, even today, in, in our world, in our time, we're not immune to this. We're not immune to religion as a checklist. Um, and it really is reducing what, what religion is, because that's not what religion is meant to be. Religion, by definition, refers to a person's belief, their heart, their values, and also their practices, their behaviors, the actions. And uh, when religion lacks one or the other, if it lacks sincerity, lacks the heart piece, there's a problem. And if religion lacks the practice, the doing the good things where your beliefs align with your actions, then there's a problem, and it's, and it's tragic. So we're going to look at Matthew 5 today, and uh, where Jesus speaks to the religious system in which the Pharisees were tragically focused on the letter of the law and had totally missed the intent of the law. And Jesus says, no, we need to look at the spirit of the law, the heart. We need to look at God's heart behind the laws and why those are there. So let's start off. We're going to start off in Matthew 5, verse 17. Read with me. It says, do not think that, and this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus is speaking, he's addressing a large crowd, many of whom are Jewish, and many of whom follow the, the law and the prophets. And the law, it's referring to the, the Torah, the first five books of, of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, I'm not here to throw it out. I'm not here to abolish it, but I'm here to fulfill it. What, what could he mean by that? Um, as I was researching, I found um, a quote from Thomas Long, who's a Presbyterian minister and a theology professor, and he wrote this. I thought he explained it really, really well. He said, Jesus is not saying, this is what the old law says, but I'm going to cast it aside and give you a new and completely opposite law to replace it. Rather, he is saying, here's what the law says, and I'm going to the heart of the law, to show you how children of the kingdom of heaven live out its deepest meaning. The law neither remains as it was, nor is it done away with. Rather, it is fulfilled and transformed in Jesus Christ. So Jesus isn't saying, we're not, we're not getting rid of the law, but we're going to go to the heart of the law. We're going we're gonna to see, go to the spirit of the law and look at the principles that God wants us to live by. So as he begins this section, he then goes to six topics. And, and some of them are more challenging than others. So we're going to read some, we're going to read a lot of scripture today. Um, but he goes to six topics that were um, very important topics um, in that day. And, he's, and he, for each of them, he says, let's not reduce them down to a mere checklist, a list of do's and don'ts, but let's, let's look at the heart of the law and what God is saying to us in this. And uh, before we, we read those sections, I just want to say he uses some really strong language in here. And um, he also uses some hyperbole. And if it's been a while since you've been in third grade, that's okay. I've got you covered. Um, hyperbole is an exaggerated statement to make a point. So if I hear a song on the radio and I say, man, I've heard that song a million times today. Well, I haven't actually heard that song a million times. I'm just making a point. Um, and so th there's some of this figurative language in here and some really strong language. So it's good for us to, to know that before we dive in. So let's go through and look at the things he's talking about. So the first one he addresses um, is murder. Matthew 5, verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, and he's referring back to the law now, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in dangers of the fire of hell. Therefore, 
If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, go first and be reconciled to them, and then come back and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus refers back to this command that is often quoted in his time. He says, do not murder. And he says, yeah, but even if you're just angry with your brother or sister, um, or if you call them a raka, which raka is a, 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 is a term meaning empty one, so maybe an expression meaning empty-headed or you fool, or if you call them you fool, well, then you are subject to judgment. And I'm pretty sure, if I look around here, there's only one type of person who's never called a sibling a fool or an idiot or something like that, and you know who you are, you're, you're those people who grew up as an only child. I mean, that is the only person who, who hasn't said something demeaning to your brother and sister. And so what is Jesus doing here? Um, he's using some strong language to indicate that how we treat people matters. It's not just about whether we murder someone or not. But how we treat people, it matters. He goes on to even say, you know, if you're, if you're offering a gift at the altar, if you're going through a religious ritual, it matters if you're not right with your brother and sister. You need to take care of that first. It's important to Jesus that we're reconciled with our brothers and sisters um, and that we treat them well. And so as we look at what Jesus has to say, we're going to use four different categories Four different categories to, to look at what Jesus is saying. So the first category is uh, the letter of the law. So Jesus um, is quoting the Old Testament saying, do not murder or you will be judged. And then we're going to look at the misuse of that law. So how is it misused in his time? <clears throat> People said, well, it doesn't really matter how I treat my brother or sister as long as I don't murder them. It doesn't matter how I how I, I treat them in hatred towards my brother or sister. Well, that's that's acceptable. That's not against the law. And yet, this is not what Jesus had, um, what God had in mind when he, he when he gave that law. The spirit of the law that Jesus is getting at here is that God wants His people to focus on reconciliation, to focus on right relationships, and to live right with others. So then as we look at those three categories, the next category makes a, lo- a lot of sense for us. Well, then well, how do we apply this law in our lives in, in today? And for us, it's I believe that God has, this is what God has for us, that we would be people committed to peace and love in our relationships. One of my favorite verses that refers to this and also talks about the struggle um, that we may experience with this is Romans 12. And Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So going on to the next section, 
adultery. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Again, the strong language, the figurative language, the hyperboles. I do not believe we are to take this literally. <laughs> I don't think God is saying to gouge out our eyes or to cut off our hands. Um, what he's saying, though, is that it's important um, to, to not sin. It's important. We went to a mission trip once um, in Portland, and the minister that we worked with there had a tattoo on his arm. And I must say, it was kind of a disturbing tattoo when I first saw it. It kind of took me by surprise. He had a dotted line and scissors tattooed on his wrist, kind of like you would see at the end of a form. And um, in small writing, it wrote, cut here in case of sin. And so we asked him, I was like, whoa, that's quite the tattoo there. What, you know, what, what's up with that tattoo? And he said, well, this is just a reminder to myself You know, I struggle with impure thoughts, and this is a reminder to myself that what I think and what I do matters. It matters to God. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. As he equates looking at at a woman lustfully to adultery, Jesus is saying, let's go to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that God wants us to be pure in thought and pure in our hearts, not just in our actions, though he does want us to be pure in our actions. So as we look at the, the letter of the law, the letter of the law says do not commit adultery, whereas the misuse of the law, both in biblical times and in our times, sometimes people think, well, anything up to adultery is permissible. I'm not actually committing adultery, so it's okay. And yet, lewd behavior and comments and pornography and other addictions like that, very destructive and, and that is not what God has for us. Instead, Jesus gets to the heart of the law, and he says, God desires purity in thought, in heart, and in action. And God wants us to be pure. Application for our lives. People, to be people who treat others as God's creation. Treat others as, as people created in the image of God with, with dignity and respect and purity. That our actions, both in our interactions with people, both the direct and the indirect, would send the message that you are valued, you, are, you, you matter, you are God's creation, and I will honor you as such. And I think the implications of, of that kind of lifestyle are, are very great in our, in our lives. The next section that Jesus talks about is divorce. And this one is a really hard topic. I'm just going to be really honest with you. This passage makes me uncomfortable to read it. It, it does. It, it hurts my heart in so many different ways. And it's been interpreted in different ways. And Jesus, again, uses, as you were seeing this pattern, some very strong language. But I think if we dive in, if we, if we look at the social context and we look at what Jesus is trying to say, there's also a beautiful message in there about marriage. 
Um, and so let's, let's take a look at that. Before we read it, though, I want to talk about the social context of, of this conversation that Jesus is having with people. Um, divorce was a highly controversial topic at that age, at that time, and divorce wasn't what we think of as now. You know, now when we think of divorce, we think of long drawn out battles and a lot of um, fighting over things. We, we, we think of a lot of a pain and it, it's really difficult. Divorce was different back then. So divorce, um, in that culture, women had zero rights. So women um, had no right at all. Women were considered property of either their fathers before they were married or their husbands after they were married. And so divorce essentially was abandonment. Divorce was when the husband said, I'm done, done with you, be gone. And sometimes they threw him out and sometimes they just left him somewhere. And uh, there was a lot of debates on divorce amongst the, the Pharisees. There were some Pharisees who believed that a uh, man could only divorce his, his wife for sexual immorality. And then there was another sect of Pharisees who, who believed that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. In fact, we see in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, they even ask the question that way. They, they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And if you look at the rabbinic teachings, the writings from that time, there's even writings that say, that clarify that, and say that a man could divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. She burnt the food. Or another, another writing states that a man could divorce his wife even if he found another fairer than her, another person prettier than her. And so it is in this social context where women have no rights and, and divorce is rampant that Jesus says this. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So when we read that, if, if you're like me, you take a deep breath, like, what? <laughs> um, at first glance, these words seem really, really harsh to me. And, and to be 100% transparent, I still have a lot of questions about this passage, even after having studied it so much. However, I've come to the conclusion that in this social context and in the context of this sermon where Jesus is using strong language and hyperbole, um, I can't help but think that Jesus' words were intended to protect the women by upholding, by holding marriage up to a higher standard, standard. That Jesus was trying to protect the women from just being abandoned and neglected so frequently. So the letter of the law says, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, the misuse of that law in those times was that men divorced or abandoned their wives at a whim. And then the women became these pawns and these, these victims of abuse. I would add today that there's um, misuse of this text, as maybe even some of us have experienced that, where this text is used, um, is interpreted as an exclusive list for divorce, 
and so used at times to urge people to stay in abusive relationships. And I do not believe that that is what Jesus intended here. Sometimes this text is, is used to heap great shame and judgment on people who are experiencing a divorce or people who have been divorced. And for that, I'm sorry, because though I haven't personally experienced a divorce, I've been around people who have, and, and my family's been affected by it, and that is a tragic and very painful experience. The beautiful message in this that I think Jesus is saying, the spirit of the law, the heart of God in all this, is that marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred and divorce is tragic. and It's painful. And so God is saying, honor your commitments to your spouse. Because marriage is sacred. Divorce is tragic. Honor your commitments to your spouse. God didn't have to create marriage, but he did as this beautiful relationship of love and intimacy. And and that is what he desires for us. So let's focus on having a stronger marriage. And let's stop asking the question, well, for what reasons could I get divorced? And let's focus on, let's make this marriage strong. So our application for, for our lives today, God desires us to be people who uphold our marriage vows, who cherish our spouses, who put great effort into strengthening our marriages because it's important. And I also believe that if we're around people who's going through the tragic and painful experience of a divorce, that God wants us to surround them and speak words of love and grace and hope into their life because God is in the business of taking brokenness and turning it into something beautiful. And that should be what we are about as well. So as we read this passage, even though it can be a little startling, I believe God's desire for us who are married is a strong marriage full of love and commitment. And that's what he's speaking to here. The next thing Jesus brings up is oaths. And we won't spend a lot of time on this. Um, we don't. We don't do a lot of oaths now, but let's go ahead and read it. Um, verse 33, it says, Again, you've heard it said to people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord. Fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or by the earth's throne, God's throne or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king and do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black all you need to say is simply yes or no anything beyond this comes from the evil one did anyone here ever do pinky promises as a kid i remember when pinky promises in my family were a big deal and you could not break a pinky promise and then i remember when that changed and how devastated i was like i thought I thought that was like binding, the pinky promise. And then it just became this very flippant and worthless thing that, um, that kids, that we did as kids. So the letter of the law here is don't break your oath. The misuse of that law is people believed, well, I don't have to tell the truth unless I'm under a specific oath. 
And Jesus really dispels that. And he says, no, the spirit of the law, the heart of God, is that we be people of integrity, that we're honest and that we tell the truth. It's a simple application in our life. Sometimes it's hard to do. But honor your word. Honor what you say and and have integrity without hidden agenda or deception. Be authentic and genuine. And that is what God wants from us. The next section, an eye for an eye. This was another one I had a lot of questions on. I I had to do some research on. This one's an interesting one for me. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek too. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So when I read, do not resist an evil person, I'm like, what? Am I supposed to be a doormat? Am I supposed to let evil people do whatever they want? Like, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem right. And I don't think that's what, what Jesus is saying here. Jesus gives three examples of degrading actions that um, Romans often did to Jews at that time. And I think that, has, that, that will help us to understand this passage if we look at those. First he says, if someone... Slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek as well. A, a slap in that day often a, was a backhanded slap, and that was not done to hurt people. That was done to humiliate. That was done by a person who was in a superior position to an inferior to put them back into their place. We even see that in, in the story of Jesus' um, arrest. It talks about they hit him with their fists, they spit on him, and then they slapped him. So the hitting was to hurt, but the spit and the slap was to humiliate. And so um, Jesus is saying here, turn the other cheek. So if someone slaps you to humiliate you, instead of looking down and cowering, he says, in dignity, look him in the eye, turn the other cheek. Don't let them degrade you. Set your own terms. The next thing he mentions is if someone's suing you or taking your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And this is in one of the laws in the Roman court of law is that a creditor could actually um, sue their, the person who's indebted to them and take the clothes off of their back. And uh, they were legally allowed to take the shirt. And, and, he, and Jesus is saying, even when someone is not being gracious to you, be gracious. Offer even more than what they're entitled to. Give them your cloak as well. And then the last thing he says there, um, if a Roman soldier forces you to walk one mile, they were allowed to do that. That was an actual law. They could ask any Jew to carry their pack for them for one Roman mile. And you just had to drop everything. There's nothing you can do. And Jesus says, do it. And then out of your own free will, walk the second mile. Rise above that humiliation and that desire for revenge and witness to them the transforming power of God's love. Do it out of your own free will. It was a very countercultural message 
And to the crowd that he was speaking to, they were probably the people who had experienced this the most. So the letter of the law is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The misuse of that law was a license for revenge. People could say, well, you did this to me. That means I'm allowed to do that to you. Today, I feel like um, there's some, some misuse in what Jesus' Jesus's words um, turn the other cheek. I've heard people say, um, use that as a reasoning for, for the oppressed to stay under oppression. Or, you know, say, well, don't fight it. You just have to turn the other cheek. You just have to take it. And, and I don't think that is what Jesus had in mind here. The spirit of the law, he's saying, surrender your right for personal revenge. Surrender your right to get back at people. And instead, counter oppression in, in nonviolent ways to demonstrating your love and your dignity and your strength of character. So, so fight it, but do it in a way that stays true to your love and dignity. And so our application today is counter evil with love, to be motivated by love and to be motivated by reconciliation. And I couldn't help, after having celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. like two or three weeks ago, I couldn't help but think of him in the way he led in that way, to, to, to fight it, but to fight it in a nonviolent way, in a loving way. There's a quote from um, Nelson Mandela I think was very pertinent to this. He says, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. If they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. And we are called to demonstrate and to teach love in how we respond. The last section here, goes right into that. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It's so countercultural back then and countercultural today. At the end of that, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And perfect in the Greek has a, has a larger meaning than today's word perfect. It means to be complete, to be mature, to be holistic. And he says, as your, as your Father loves, you should love. So I would paraphrase that. Love completely, even your enemy, just as your heavenly Father loves completely. And look at these four categories up here. Love your neighbor was the letter of the law. By the way, hate your enemy was not in the Old Testament. That was added to it. That was part of the teaching of the day. And the misuse was, you know, getting to choose who your neighbor was and then not loving the people you didn't want to love. But the spirit behind that is God calls us to love all people as God loves all people, to pray for our enemies, to show kindness, and to love completely. That's a lot of text, and we went through a lot, um, a lot there, and it's, it, you know, it's a bunch of different little topics there. But there's a theme in it all. The theme is that our heart and our practice must align to have a, a true religion. 
To be full of faith means that our actions reflect our transformed heart. And our transformed heart needs to reflect the heart of God. And the heart of God is about loving people, pursuing people, and transforming people. And that is what um, our, our religion, our faith, our practice should be about. In this passage, Jesus gives us specific insights into the heart of God. He says, I desire people who are committed to peace and love in our relationships. People who treat each other as God's creation with respect and dignity. People who uphold marriage vows and cherish spouses and put great effort into marriages. People who are known for their integrity People who tell the truth, who are authentic and genuine. People who counter evil with love and who are motivated motivated by a desire for reconciliation and forgiveness. People who love completely as God does, even when we're treated badly. And this is a beautiful way to live. It is a very healing and hopeful way way to live in a world that is often unjust. And in this way of living, Jesus' words here affect who we want to be as a church. It impacts us. We want to be a place of belonging. We want to have peaceful and loving relationships here. We want to be a group of people where diversity and inclusion go hand in hand, where we treat each other even when we're different with dignity and respect and love. We want to be a group of people where equality is a key characteristic, where we're all created equal in the image of God, and we we live into that concept. And we want to be a community that, that empowers each other to love and to love completely as God loves. Our dream for this church is that we would ref- our hearts and our actions would reflect the heart of God. And that's what we're invited to. So this week in, in your personal lives and together as we, as we come together in community, um, I invite you to, to reflect on that. How, how does your heart And and how do our actions reflect the love of God? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord. We thank you so much for um, your love. Lord, we thank you for for Jesus and his words here, Lord. Even when sometimes it's hard to read and it's hard to understand and there's strong language, Lord, we we see the heart. We see your heart that um, you are very much about loving others. Lord, that you're very much about living transformed lives. And God, I just pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to know how to do that in our lives. Lord, that you would work in the situations that we're in, that you would bring about healing and hope. And Lord, that you would draw us together, closer together as a community of love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.